Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Markus Hippi. Over the next 60 minutes we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios at Midori House and from around the world. This week, as the last Airbus A380 is completed and some are even scrapped, we'll ask whether the world really did fall in love with aviation's grand long-haul experiment. It was always meant to be stretched. That's another main reason that it didn't succeed in the end, because Airbus never did the step to invest more money to stretch the aircraft, as was inbuilt in the design already. That's why it looks a bit stubby, because this is the only the base version, the kind of shorter, stubby version. Plus, we gaze into our crystal ball and hear about predicting the future as we meet astrologer Susan Miller. Short in astrology can be confusing and misleading. So you have to give complete information, but in a warm, entertaining way. You can't be encyclopedic. You can't be dull. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Markus Hippi. As it's the end of the week, let's begin today's program with Andrew Miller's regular wrap of all the things we know now that we didn't seven days ago. Here is what we learned. We learned this week that the more voluble cohorts of the anti-vaccination movement may not contain among their seething ranks our best and brightest. You know the clip. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. On Monday, a largely bemused London was treated to the spectacle of anti-vaxxers storming the BBC, presumably on the basis of the corporation's complicity in the vast and sinister media conspiracy to propagate the fiction of a pandemic in order to coerce an unwitting population into being implanted with 5G tracker nanobots. (coughs) Were we not supposed to have said that out loud? Ah, well, cat out of the bag. Anyway, the injection rejectors duly descended upon Television Centre in West London, which meant we learned that they had not learned that the BBC actually left these premises in 2013, which meant that the protesters had actually laid siege to an apartment complex, the few remaining studios in which are largely leased to ITV for the filming of inane daytime chat shows. It is, however, probably regrettably unlikely that we will learn that any of those involved might absorb this mishap as a salutary lesson in the perils of, as they would doubtless have it, doing your own research. But... In fairness to the misguided, in several senses of that word, rabble pointing their pitchforks in the wrong direction, we did learn that you can't necessarily believe everything you read about COVID-19, especially if you read it in the official media of China. Yeah, fire it up again. No, really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. 
blow me down. We learned that Global Times, People's Daily, China Daily, Shanghai Daily and other widely read Chinese outlets had lit upon a buccaneering new voice to cite in their coverage of COVID-19. A maverick, tell-it-like-it-is Swiss biologist, one Wilson Edwards, declaring his belief in a Facebook post that the Geneva-based World Health Organization's investigations into the origins of the virus were likely to be politicised to China's disadvantage at the behest of the United States. What was that? Oh, I see, a scoop. Very good. Anyway, yes, quite a story until someone at the Swiss Embassy in Beijing did what Chinese hacks had not and typed Wilson Edwards' name into Google. You may now take a wild guess at what they discovered. We learned that Wilson Edwards does not, in fact, exist, that there is no record of any Swiss citizen of that name or any pertinent academic articles beneath that byline. And slash but, we also learned that one of Switzerland's people in Beijing is a colossal credit to their country's diplomatic tradition, as they crafted a masterclass in velvet-gloved, steel-clawed euphemism, as we will now demonstrate by contrasting what the Swiss embassy statement said with what the Swiss Embassy's statement actually meant. What they said... While we appreciate the attention in our country, the Embassy of Switzerland must unfortunately inform the Chinese public that this news is false. What they meant... Seriously, lads, just run with whatever mad nonsense you like, but leave us out of this. What they said... The Facebook account was only opened on July 24, 2021 and has only posted this one post so far. It only has three friends. It is likely that this Facebook account was not opened for social networking purposes. What they meant. Okay, if any of you bozos would like to buy some magic beans, we can hook you up. What they said. We assume that the spreading of the story was done in good faith. And what they meant. We absolutely do not assume that the spreading of this story was done in good faith. And we learned that a severe test is being put to UNESCO's already famously generous ideas of what constitutes intangible cultural heritage deserving of formal protection. UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage list has long been beloved of takers of wry sidelong looks at the news, solemnly enshrining as it does such endeavours as Belgian horseback shrimp fishing, Belarusian tree-born beekeeping, Finnish sauna enduring, Bosnian lawn mowing, Vietnamese gong thwacking et al. We learned that one attention-seeking Spanish village, Algar, in Andalusia, which clearly cannot be bothered with actually learning to do anything, is seeking UNESCO recognition for what it claims is its distinct quirk of chalas al fresco, which appears to translate roughly as having a chat while sitting outside. Impressed by Algar's combination of laziness and shamelessness, we're going to sign off this week by embracing their tradition ourselves. Here is Monocle 24's staff sitting outside and having a chat, just like the Algarians do. Okay, what does he want us to do this time? Andrew, I have a live show! What am I doing this? Why? Why? Let me out! Enough.
is enough. Just never ask me for this stuff again because I'm so sorry. Can you just leave me alone, Andrew? Because I've actually got work to do. I'm really busy. Thank you. No, I just have too much to do. Like, honestly, every damn week is the same thing. Read us line, read us line, I'm going. Bye. Thanks, team. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller there. The Tokyo Olympics have concluded, which means that for many, this week has brought relief as they were finally permitted out of the Olympic bubble after 14 days in quasi-quarantine. Among those enjoying their newfound freedom is our Olympic correspondent Kieran Pender, who filed this dispatch. major international sporting events such as the Olympics, the days tend to blur together. For those on the ground, whether as athletes, officials or journalists, the long hours make it easy to lose track of time. A Sunday has no meaningful difference to a Monday. But today has special significance. It is not the cycling at the Izu Velodrome I'm here to cover, although the action has been exciting and dramatic. It is not the fact that there is a rare local crowd here because Izu is out of Tokyo and not currently subject to a state of emergency. Although that certainly improves the atmosphere. No, what makes today special is that when I woke up and checked an app on my phone, its colour had changed from a violent red to a soothing green. Suddenly, I was free. When Tokyo was awarded these Olympics back in 2013, it was heralded as a festival of celebration as Japan bounced back from the turbulence of the Fukushima disaster. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. But when the novel coronavirus hit in early 2020, the Games organisers faced a major headache. How to safely hold a global sporting event that brings in tens of thousands of athletes, coaches, officials and journalists in the middle of a pandemic. We are breaking into programming here on Al Jazeera because in the last few minutes, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe now says he's asked the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, for a one-year postponement of the Tokyo Olympics. And he says that these will now, these summer games, will be held by summer 2021 at the latest. He says that he has been in touch with... The the one-year postponement helped. Many of those arriving in Tokyo in recent weeks have been vaccinated, including myself. But it has not mitigated the risk entirely. And so, those turning up for the Games have been subject to one of the most complex and comprehensive regimes of testing and movement limitations seen anywhere. Thank you for waiting, ladies and gentlemen. Passengers involved in the Olympic and Paralympic Games, please disembark the forward exit. The staff of the Games Organizing Committee will guide you after disembarking from the aircraft. So please disembark. Since I landed in Tokyo just over two weeks ago, I've been in quasi-quarantine, restricted to the Olympic bubble and subject to a COVID test every day. 
Thankfully, the organisers decided on saliva tests, so it has been a morning spit rather than an unpleasant nostril intrusion. My every movement has been tracked by an app on my phone. We were warned that if we strayed beyond what had been approved by the Japanese government in a pre-authorised activity plan we were required to submit, we could be deported. There has been a guard stationed in the lobby of my hotel 24 hours a day. Whenever I wanted to leave, whichever guard was on duty would stare me down, silently communicating what his presence made clear. Follow the rules, or else. Of course, not everyone did. Every few days we have received a scolding email from the local organisers. A handful of journalists had their accreditation suspended, two judokas were sent home for going sightseeing. First of all, we would like to express our sincere appreciation to all the media who, in spite of the many restrictions, managed to comply with the rules. Unfortunately, we have been reported and complained by some of the hotels, such as in Ginza, Makuhari and Shiomi, that some of our stakeholders have been caught on drinking outside of the hotel at night. But by and large, the restrictions have worked. Despite a surge of COVID in Tokyo, just 100 or so athletes, officials and staff from within the bubble have tested positive over the past month. With almost half a million COVID tests processed during the Olympics, that is an extremely low positivity rate. Although, of course, each and every COVID positive has a wider fallout, particularly for athletes. Australia's athletics team is happy to be out there after a COVID scare briefly forced the entire squad into isolation yesterday. Pole vaulters Curtis Marshall, Nina Kennedy and their coach were exposed to a positive case in the village but have tested negative. With case numbers in the wider Tokyo community rising rapidly, there had been whispers earlier in the week that everyone at the Games would be forced to stay in the bubble indefinitely to minimise risk of community to Olympic transmission. Indeed, it is only journalists and some other stakeholders that benefit from freedom after 14 days. Athletes and team staff are kept in the bubble and must leave Japan within 48 hours of their competition concluding. But when I woke up, the app was green. After 14 days within the Olympic bubble, permitted only room service, Uber Eats and 15 minutes each day at a local convenience store, the first order of business will be a proper meal upon my return to Tokyo. The konbinis, as mini-marts are known in Japan, have been a lifeline for those in the bubble. A New York Times article was even headlined, Tokyo Convenience Store Chicken Gizzards Saved My Life. Finally, on day 15, I can pass on the gizzards. For Monocle, in Tokyo, I'm Kieran Pender. Kieran Pender there. From the Tokyo Olympics, we turn to a delicious export of Japan now as our next highlight comes from this week's edition of Food Neighbourhoods. For the latest instalment, we met the man behind London's humble chicken restaurant as he shares a chicken teriyaki recipe. My name is Angelo Sato. I've got a restaurant called Humble Chicken in Soho. I've got another dark kitchen quick service concept called Yatai and we do a chicken teriyaki there so I'll just give you that recipe you know recipe from there so basically what you'll need is the key is a teriyaki sauce so I'll give you a recipe for a very good strong teriyaki sauce that you can use for anything so you just need one tablespoon of a sake one tablespoon of mirin 
one tablespoon of sugar, two tablespoons of soy sauce, three tablespoons of water, and then the key is the grated ginger and onion. That's going to thicken uh, the sauce and give it lots of umami and deliciousness. So you want basically half to one fourth of onion, about 30 grams. And you want to grate that into the sauce and you want about a small knob of ginger, about two centimeters square. And you want to grate that too. So if you grate that and mix that all together and then you're going to want to use chicken uh, thigh with the skin on. So you just stab that with a fork and then you marinate it in the sauce for about 10-15 minutes. Take it out, put it in a non-stick pan uh, with a little bit of oil, get it colored on one side for about two minutes, and then turn it over, add the rest of the sauce, put a lid on it, and then just gently steam it and let the sauce reduce for about you know two, three minutes. Let it rest for five minutes, and then just put it over some rice, drizzle the sauce over, and you've got delicious chicken teriyaki. The chef Angelo Sato there for this week's episode of Food Neighbors. Staying with food and drink now, after two difficult years, the Hong Kong restaurant industry is back on its feet and bubbling with countless newly opened outlets. From restaurant groups who have perfected a winning formula to new talents making bold statements through their food, restaurateurs are determined to conquer Hong Kongers' palates. Monaco's Nina Milord in Hong Kong has the story. Hong Kong loves, breathes and lives for food. It's one of the rare cities where you'll see restaurants full all day round. From street stalls to Michelin-starred tables, options are endless and Hong Kongers will spend senseless amounts of money on a nice meal. Yet last year, the city's restaurant industry was hit by its worst earning decline on record, dropping by close to 30% from the previous year. Asim Hussein is the co-founder of Black Sheep, one of Hong Kong's most successful restaurant groups. Today, Black Sheep counts over 30 outlets across the city, covering cuisines from all around the world, including several Michelin-starred establishments. He tells us about how the last two years impacted his business. We've sort of been in this really tricky place now for two years, because the year... 2019 was really difficult too uh, for us with the social unrest in Hong Kong. To So to say that last year has been challenging would be an understatement. They were, I get a lump in my throat even talking about this, I can say this now loudly and proudly, but there were times last year where we did not know how we were going to make it uh, from one week to the next. Despite the toll on his business, Black Sheep is still expanding with six new outlets planned for opening in the next year or so. And they're not the only ones. The Hong Kong food scene is experiencing a renewed effervescence with countless new restaurants opening across the spectrum. Catherine Feliciano Chon is the founder and managing director of Catchon, a communications agency working with some of Hong Kong's most renowned restaurants. She shares her perspective on the last year. Hong Kong remains a very kind of exciting and robust environment because we're paying, we have the consumption power at a dining level. People here pay well for good food. We're very well exposed. We're, we're tough diners because we know what we want. But also there's a lot of investment coming back to Hong Kong. So despite all the economic woes and all the you know level of uncertainty that we we're experiencing right now with the pandemic, you know the fact that the restaurant scene remains robust, it's just a testament to this this particular region and market, I should say, 
right now because we can't travel our only mode of travel is through the plate it's through what we experience in a restaurant Beyond the appreciation of experiential dining, the pandemic has also brought new trends in the restaurant industry. One of these being the rising number of new Italian outlets opening across the city. Tony Paese is one of the restaurateurs who took the leap and opened Crust, a new Italian restaurant and pasticceria in Hong Kong's Wan Chai last June. Our culinary director and chef and myself, we've been in Hong Kong about 12 years right now. And we both coming from the region of Campania, which is very well known for the city of Naples. Myself in particular, I'm from the seaside. And we thought there was missing, an op- actually was an opportunity to create something that is lifestyle, vibrant uh, pasticceria, offering from breakfast to late night. And having the same feeling to be in holiday, but being uh, in a city like Hong Kong. And obviously the, the overall situation working work out so well because everybody is, is desperate to travel around the world and missing all these uh, characteristics of the Amalfi Coast. Beyond food trends, the pandemic has also brought a new sense of awareness to sustainability in the food industry. From sourcing local ingredients to turning to a more plant-based diet, we've seen a growing demand for more sustainable practices in the food industry. Hong Kong's Arcane Collective, helmed by chef Shane Osborne, has been a champion when it comes to sustainability. Michael Smith, who is currently chef de cuisine at Arcane, one of the group's two restaurants, tells us more on the chain to incorporate as many locally sourced ingredients as possible. A challenge in a city like Hong Kong. The great lessons that we've learned in the last year, coming together, not working in, in silos as we have done for a long time, We're starting to build and reunite relationships with local farmers and there's a a new generation of young farmers that are really helping bridge that gap. Obviously there can be a a communication, a language barrier, but this, this younger generation of farmers is helping to bring us back together. The farming in Hong Kong there is, often we don't know about the farming in Hong Kong. It's been missing for a while, but organic and regenerative farming in Hong Kong is there. We just need to support it more. As we support it, as the demand grows, the supply will grow and we'll build a more resilient food system in Hong Kong. The changes, they begin with us as chefs. Michael Smith will be opening Moxie, a brand new restaurant under Arcane Collective in August. A modern European and vegetable-centric restaurant. A concept still niche and challenging for Hong Kong's meat-loving diners. There is a lot of meat lovers in in Hong Kong. There are a lot of meat lovers all over the world. There's also a lot of people in Hong Kong. We feel we'll be hitting quite a niche market where there's there's not vast amounts of vegetarian forward restaurants. We as restaurateurs, we have the power to enforce that change. And we as diners, the choices that we make, the restaurants that we visit, the food that we eat, the food that we cook at home, you know, those small changes will make a difference. A positive change for Hong Kong's dining scene and one that is expected to make the city's food system more resilient. A positive change for Hong Kong's dining scene and one that is expected to make the city's food system more resilient. What's sure is that despite being hardly hit by two tough years, the industry is back on its feet, fueled with new talents and ideas to share through the plate. For Monocle in Hong Kong, 
Thank you, Nina. Still to come here on The Curator, we hear from the author of a new book on the demise of the Airbus A380 to discuss the future of long-haul plane design. We speak to one of the world's best-known astrologers, Susan Miller, and we go on a US road trip for this week's tall story. Stay tuned. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Keen for a quick tutorial on where you should take your business over the coming months? The really brilliant products are brilliant, not because of a marketing campaign or because they've managed to get some incredible ambassador. They really are good because they add value. Interested to learn how one of the world's biggest pharma companies responded to the pandemic? We need what's called warm preparedness. So we need public health systems that have the supplies ready, at least for the initial phase of a pandemic. Curious about the future of air travel? Everybody's looking forward to connect with the world, connect with friends around the world and just spend some leisure time and some relaxing time abroad. Or wondering whether shops will still matter. There's thousands of different journeys through the store that anyone who walks in could take. From CEOs to editors-in-chief, CMOs to chief strategy officers, our series is a fast-paced, intimate discussion with chiefs, big and small, from around the world. That's The Chiefs right here on Monocle 24 or wherever you find finer podcasts. You are with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I am Marcus Hippi. Jared McGuinness is a debut novelist, but he's not new to the literary scene. His short fiction has appeared in journals in the UK and North America, and his work has been commissioned for BBC Radio 4. On last Sunday's Meet the Writers, Jared spoke to the show's host, George Godwin about his new book, The Coward, which fictionalises his own autobiography and the aftermath of the accident that changed his life. Georgina began by asking, Jared if he would describe The Coward as autofiction or as a novel. It is a novel and I, I kind of set that out very early. It says a novel and I kind of have a a, a slightly uh, spiky uh, epigraph to kind of set the tone. But, you know, it has been referred to as autofiction, but I think that's something very specific and I don't think it quite qualifies. And I talk about, you know, if you did a replace all with the uh, the main character's name, which as it was published, is my, exactly my name. I think the book would still stand, but I knew as a uh, as someone in a wheelchair with a similar background to the main character, I was always going to be conflated, and so I kind of I kind of call it kind of a land grab, and I made I made the reader themselves do the work and kind of understand that to get 
to the book that I wanted, I had to look at some very personal and intimate of things in my life. And I couldn't deny that the main character and I do share these, you know, he comes from me and he is a part of me. And I didn't want to have that that degree of uh, plausible deniability that um, some other, you know, uh, fiction writers utilize. And I wanted to kind of admit that. Of course, the one big thing that that both you and the character in the book share is the fact that you suffered spinal injury. That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I was slightly younger, but yeah, so we were both in a kind of traumatic car accident. And uh, that really kind of set it, set the story. And it's, it kind of made me think about what was my story and but also that you know this story wasn't getting told and i would find disability portrayed in fiction and i'd be like that's that's not it at all and it kind of agitated me finally to like write about it and it's something i i probably consciously avoided because i didn't want to be the uh, adjective writer mm. you know the disabled writer and I avoided it because of just how, you know, reductive our kind of conversations can be in, in terms of literature and, and the author. But it was one of these things that just kept coming into the kind of the grit, you know, in the pearl that I had, that I had to write this story. And this, you know, this was my kind of first novel and I before I'd written short stories. And uh, yeah, it definitely kind of came to that. And I wanted to get this story right. It was very important. And, you know, the reaction has been incredible because, you know, I was kind of nervous, like how others would see disability portrayed because I'm really just talking about my experiences, but disability is this kind of broad church. And, um, you know, the response, particularly from the disabled community has been kind of encouraging. And I, and I'm glad that I kind of did a good job for the team as it were. Mm. Um, Your accident though happened 20 years ago. And I wonder how easy it was to access the memories and and the reality of how how it was then, because presumably, I mean, you've moved on a a great deal since then. (laughs) Yeah, that's the kind of thing of the, you know, the kind of fictionalizing processes. I had to go do my research like anyone else. You know, it had been, gosh, 15, 20 years by then. And I had gotten very used to my identity had kind of solidified and I'm, you know, I don't really think about my disability. I move about quite, quite easily in this world. And um, I had to do the research and I had to go back and think about that, that really kind of emotionally vulnerable time when your, your sense of self is completely destroyed. And that was useful because I was coming at it again of like, how do I communicate this this story to someone who doesn't have a disability, who hasn't experienced that. And when people talk about the brutal honesty of the of the book, I think that's what they're getting at is even though they haven't had this experience, they felt like they had. And that to me as a fiction writer, I've done my job really well. And, you know, to get them to understand what it actually is like to experience this, you know, just completely traumatic experience on your own psyche and your own sense of self, never mind the kind of physical pain uh, that kind of continues continues on like you you just have to deal with it and you do or or you don't and you know the kind of rate of suicides amongst you know people with spinal cord injuries uh, is is higher than the population and uh, yeah it's a hard thing to deal with but you deal with it with such wonderful kind of black humor uh, yeah i mean <laughs> that's kind of inevitable I think like that, you know, again, comes from my personality, but again, it was part of craft. It was, you know, I was going to take the reader on a journey 
And it's very, it's structurally, you don't find out what happens to Jared until you've near the end when you have gone on to this journey with him. And then it's, to me, it's like, you've always, then now, dear reader, you've earned to find out what happened to Jared. And, you know, cause throughout the novel, there's random strangers constantly ask him what happened to you. And that was my idea behind that kind of structurally, but uh, to just kind of batter the reader with kind of misery and pain is just not interesting to me as a reader. And I didn't want to do that to others. And I didn't want this to just be like, how much pain can one character endure? And I really wanted to kind of keep that kind of heart line of just, you know, even though we might, we all have our traumas and we all have difficult things we're going through, but even in those, and maybe even especially in those moments, that's where our humanity lies. And that's, you know, that's where the gallows, the dark humor comes from. The author Jared McGuinness in conversation with Monocle's George and Godwin for last weekend's edition of Meet the Writers. To hear the full episode, head to our website, monocle.com forward slash radio. Aviation is full of love affairs. The architect Sir Norman Foster described the Boeing 747 as his favourite building. Eyes well up and hearts flutter at the memory of Concorde, and the race is firmly on to revive supersonic flight. But will the same depth of feeling be reserved for the Airbus A380? The last giant double-decker to be built has been completed, and some have even been scrapped, with airlines such as Qatar Airways, Etihad and Lufthansa all giving up on their A380s. For Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Emma Nelson was joined on the line by the aviation journalist Andreas Spett, the author of a new book on the demise of the Airbus A380, to discuss the future of long-haul plane design. Let's have a listen. Let's just get this in context. This was such a beautiful project, wasn't it? intended to unite Europe in so many ways and revolutionise long-haul flight. It's like the ultimate airfix model. Yeah, kind of. I can remember when I was on the very first passenger flight ever, scheduled passenger flight in October 2007 from Singapore to Sydney. And we arrived in Sydney and everybody was jubilant and it was really obvious this was the future. And uh, there were hostesses on the, in the arrivals hall holding up copies of the Sydney Morning Health's, uh, Sydney Morning Health's title page of the day saying the future has arrived in Sydney. That was the mood in 2007. And now we're just like 14 years later. And now, as you just rightly said, some A380s have even been scrapped and the program is over, it's dead, and that's it. So that's really unbelievable. And I've, it's, it's never been happening in aviation before that such a huge, almost 20 billion euro project has been scrapped so soon. What went wrong? Yeah, that's a question that's very valid. And I asked this question to many of the people who actually were responsible at the time. And the problem is in manifold. It was wrong timing because the aircraft basically came out in the world financial crisis, which was in 2008, around that time. And that actually was the worst crisis for aviation before COVID. Um, and that was the very worst time to come to market with such a huge aircraft seating almost I mean, an average of 450 people. It could actually take 871, which luckily nobody ever tried. So that was one very important point. And then, of course, basically, it was a four-engine aircraft 
with a fairly uh, simple and not very innovative technology at the time. So the newest materials that we see today in the 787 Dreamliner or the A350, the newest Airbus carbon fiber, wasn't around yet in that way. So it was really still kind of metal. It was like a fairly conventional aircraft, meaning it has been basically becoming obsolete a bit like a decade later when much more modern, more efficient aircraft and especially, and that's one very crucial point, much more efficient engines were available. So in that respect, technologically, the Airbus A380 is kind of an old generation aircraft, which is far too expensive in today's operation standards compared to these newer variants. How much did passengers love it? I mean, speaking to friends and colleagues, I have never heard anyone say a bad word about the A380. Eyes light up with excitement. My husband said he never wanted to get off an A380 because it was so comfortable. And the fact that it was so quiet and you had no idea how this thing got off the ground. I mean, people really, passengers fell in love with it, didn't they? Absolutely. That's a very common sentiment. And I can actually attest that to, my, attest to that myself because I fly on it often, of course. I mean, it's not very beautiful from the outside. So in design terms, and we are here at Monocle 24, so you are very design minded as I am. And I mean, even the, the, the makers and the, the, in the so-called father of the A380 admits that it's not the most beautiful aircraft from the outside because it's kind of stubby. It was always meant to be stretched. And that's another main reason that it didn't succeed in the end because Airbus never did the step to invest more money to stretch the aircraft as was inbuilt in the design already. That's why it looks a bit stubby because this is the only the base version, the kind of shorter stubby version. But in general, that's absolutely true until this day that passengers love the A380. I'm often talking to Emirates, who is the, which is the biggest customer. They've ordered about 150 unbelievable A380s and um, actually 120, 123 is their actual number. And they tell me even today, people get out of their way to fly on the A380 rather than another aircraft. And the good news is for everybody who loves the A380 that Emirates, at least, will still have the A380 around until the early, at least, 2030s. So there will be ample opportunities still for people to fly the A380 for another decade. Which elements of the A380 will be taken forward and placed into the future of aviation? Its design may have gone and its technology may be clunky, but there was a lot to be said about the double-decker and there was a lot to be said about, again, about the comfort levels on the plane. Absolutely. And I mean, while we won't see probably the exact uh, configuration like a double deck of the A380 being taken much forward because it's just too big in a way. Uh, the trends, the market trends have developed in a different direction and people rather fly like long haul flights even from secondary airports, that's why the 787, for example, is so successful. But Airbus actually stresses, and that's obviously true, that they wouldn't be here where they are today without the A380, even considering the A380 a failure. So what we see today, the Airbus A350, which is one of the most efficient aircraft around, is also much loved by the airlines. It's also a very nice aircraft, I have to say, as a passenger. That actually couldn't have been conceived without having the often painful uh, experiences with the A380 behind them. So actually, that was really and the enabler. So that in, is in this aircraft and in the process it's being built, the A350, the modern one, there's a lot of A380 in it. Aviation journalist Andreas Spert in conversation with Monocle's Emma Nelson earlier this week. 
From the dizzying heights of aviation, we look slightly further afield now for our next highlight. Younger generations remain in love with the Zodiac. If you look at magazines, broadsheets, different websites, the topic of astrology is a mainstay. On last Saturday's edition of The Stack, our very own Fernando Augusto Pacheco invited perhaps the best-known astrologer out there, Susan Miller from Astrology Zone. Besides her website, she writes for six international magazines. And in this highlight, Susan tells Fernando why longer form is better and about her close relationship with the fashion industry. Here is Susan with more. I used to have nine magazines, but the magazine business is going through some trials and tribulations. I know it will come back because when I open a magazine, I'm in another world. Even the ads are wonderful. And right now they're, they're very flat, at least in the United States, very flat, like little pancakes. But I think, uh, you know, society never gives up a form of communication. Remember when they said radio was dead and now we have podcasts, which are like radio, it's audio. And we have Clubhouse, which is all audio, social media. So society doesn't give up a form of communication immediately, but it changes. But I think magazines will come back someday. And I've got to be honest with you, Susan, even uh, in Brazil when I was growing up, there was horoscope and astrology in the daily papers as well. And to be honest, that was kind oh, of yeah. essential, well, essential reading. News. Yeah, it was yeah. essential reading for me. And, and, and I hope they continue because it's quite fun. It's interesting to know in the middle of the pol- all the political stories and everything. And then uh, there's something consistent there, which I always like. Well, you know, I have an app on the Apple App Store and Google Play, which is free for all your listeners. Free, absolutely free. You just go in. Now, it's a long name. So if you just search Susan Miller, (laughs) because it's called Daily Horoscope, Astrology Zone, and more by Susan Miller. And uh, just search Susan Miller. We had to put my face on the screen because people were pretending to be me and confusing the users. So... Uh, Look for me in a white blouse on either Google Play or the Apple App Store and download it for free. There is a component that if you want longer forecasts, it's $4.99 a month U.S. But uh, you don't need it because it has my monthly. That's what put me on the map. People love my monthly. And it's on the free app. I wanted to give it to people. I'm trying to do what my mother did for me. When I was paralyzed during the operation at age 14, I was in the hospital for a whole 11 months straight. And then I was looking at several years of grueling physical therapy. And I remember saying to my mother, I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean. And I don't even know which way land is. I don't know how to get to land. She said, you will get to land. And I'm going to help you. You will, and you will walk again. You will, and I do. But, uh, you know, you have to work at it. And uh, I couldn't go to high school. I had to do homeschool. The Board of Education, you know, works with kids like that who get sick. And, um, and then I went on to college. I went to New York University and majored in business and graduated most likely to succeed. So... <laughs> because I found my determination like a little squirrel that wasn't going to give up, you know, (laughs) but my mother gave me that. So the reason I have a free component to the app is because people 
people are walking over broken glass and hot coals out there. And I want to give them a view of all the good in their chart. Sometimes you're looking over here at a problem and you're not seeing all the glittering things that are over here. So it's my job to show you everything and with the hard part to show you a way out and how long it might take. You know, some things take longer to fix than others. But once you do, you become strong. And that's, that's good. I think one of the <laughs> secrets for your success as well, I mean, reading a few of your kind of readings and everything, there's a, there's a, a, a lack of uh, being too judgmental, which sometimes, you know, people might have this image of astrology, like, oh, you have to do this, don't do that, don't, don't date this person. But I think yours, it's always, as I say, looking at the bright side of life in a way. Almost. And, and it's up to you. And sometimes I'll say it could work out this way or it could work out that way. There are different interpretations. That's what makes, you know, each forecast between 2,500 words or 3,000 words. Well, actually, this sometimes they go to 4,000 words uh, occasionally. We like but the long ones, by the way. Explain something. <laughs> you know what it is? short in astrology can be confusing and misleading. So you have to give complete information, but in a warm, entertaining way. You can't be encyclopedic. You can't be dull. And so I keep pushing myself to use new words, but also I realize that 52% of my audience is not in the United States. And some people are reading my column and English is not a first language for them and uh, perhaps difficult. Maybe they're just learning English. So I have to be sure not to use idioms that people wouldn't. I remember talking to a Chinese girl and she was going through a hard time. And I said, oh, it's time to get back on the horse. You know, it was after an appearance I did. And she said, oh, what is this? about horses, oh, cowboy horses, American <laughs> horses. <laughs> I said, all right, it's an expression we used. You got to get, you know, when the horse throws you off, you have to get back on. But it was so cute. And it really um, made me realize, you know, that when you're talking to a mass audience, you have to be clear. <laughs> Where do they come from, if not from the United States? What are some countries that oh, you could spotlight? Well, well, I have a very, in terms of my cities, LA is my biggest with New York a close second. And then close after that is London, uh, the UK and all their parts like uh, Australia or Canada or Ireland or Scotland and England. Those are big for me. But in terms of non-English speaking countries, the two biggest are Turkey and Brazil. Brazil bigger than Turkey, but those I'm are the I'm glad two. to hear, glad to hear, Susan. <laughs> and then also China, I was just accepted by a Chinese company. You know, it's like Apple. It's actually under the umbrella of Google, but it's a Chinese carrier like Apple or Google Play. And China's big for me. I've been there three times. I've been to Japan once. I really would like to come back there. I want to travel more and I... I wanted to go to England. You and I have to have dinner. I would like to show, give you a tour of the <laughs> office as well. I love that. It would be so exciting. <laughs> that was the astrologer Susan Miller in conversation with Monaco's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Mm-hmm. 
Time for another highlight from last weekend as we look back to the foreign desk. The small South African nation of Eswatini has been making headlines recently due to growing unrest over the monarch's blatant displays of a lavish lifestyle while his citizens live under COVID restrictions and dire poverty. The country has long been suffering with such injustices, but one monocle staffer, Louis Harnett O'Mara, still has fond memories of his childhood there. Let's have a listen. When I arrived in Swaziland, now known as Aswatini, the first thing that struck me was the heat. A contrast to the grey skies of England where I'd travelled from at four years old. The sun blazed down, and though more temperate than much of sub-Saharan Africa, the breeze there wafted, as if from a hairdryer, all throughout the summer. The rain there too bore little similarity to Britain's showers. It would pound down during thunderstorms, which occurred almost every night, leaving the air sharp and the paving stones dark in the morning, the smell of turned earth rising from our garden. My family had moved to Mbaban, the capital city of the small, landlocked country of one million or so in 2000. Contracted by the European Union, my father was there to advise on the development of the nascent economy. He worked with the Swazi Minister for Agriculture and had some involvement in coordinating the establishment of the nation's infrastructure. He would explain to me that Swaziland was not a fair country, and I would try to understand. The nation's wealth was concentrated in the hands of the Swazi royal family, while some 70% of the population lived below the poverty line. This fact has changed a little over the years, but not a lot. The proportion of people in poverty today sits closer to 60%. But my memories are happy, and for a long time many of Swaziland's people were happy too. Though poor most lived by means of subsistence farming, which goes unaccounted for in traditional economic models, and though neglected by the king, an incapable and uncaring ruler, who is at the root of the uprising taking place today. The Swazis have lived without fear of racial persecution, a concern that hung over their neighbours in South Africa, like a cloud. I remember the beauty of the landscape. It's like Scotland in the sun, my mother once said to me. And she was right. We'd ride through the lush hills and the plains on horses, kept in stables looked after by an Englishwoman, who we came to be on good terms with. We've kept in touch with many of our friends from these years. There's Fernando, an Italian man whose thick white moustache bore my deep envy, and who would beg my mother to bring him apple crumble whenever we stopped by. An American called Melinda and her Japanese husband, Sakaru, would have my two brothers and I visit their home often, where we would play with their two children. Returning to the UK, I was seven years old. We moved back to a small town in the north of England, Boston Spa, where my aunt lived, and I joined my cousins at a local primary school. My handwriting was poor, but otherwise I was up to speed with the other children, a fact that pleased my parents, who had been responsible for most of my education up to that point. Swazi schooling begins at seven. We lived a more structured life, and I enjoyed the presence of my extended family around me. But I grew upset one day. My mother couldn't explain my shift in mood, and asked what it was that was bothering me. I told her I was missing Swaziland. When she asked me what I missed about it, I paused for a long time. Eventually I turned to her, my young face deeply serious, and I said just one word. Everything.
Monaco's Louis Harnett O'Mara there for last weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk. Up next, it's time for a tall story. The American road trip is back this summer and with it a chance to see the country's epic, wacky and kitschy roadside attractions. Back home in Bemidji, Minnesota, Monaco's Kimberly Bradley checked in with the iconic giant statues of the lumberjack Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox who have been posing for tourists since 1937. But why were they built at all and what does the American roadside attraction mean today? Day, Kimberly stopped by the statues of Paul and Babe to find out. A giant concrete elephant in New Jersey, a monolithic pair of cowboy boots in Texas, an outside wigwam village in California, and a statue of a broad-shouldered lumberjack and his huge cerulean blue ox in northern Minnesota. Roadside attractions have been big in America since the early 20th century, when the nation's first cars and highway systems emerged and long road trips first became possible and popular. Expanses of admittedly boring landscape inspired entrepreneurs and tourist boards to erect visually outrageous things to attract both attention and customers. The Big Elephant in New Jersey houses a restaurant, and the famous concrete Cabazon Dinosaur Park in California led to a restaurant on SoCal's Interstate 10. Usually roadside attractions are about passing by, but I grew up in the shadows of one. Allegedly the country's second most photographed one after the presidential faces etched into Mount Rushmore. In my hometown of Bemidji, Minnesota, the aforementioned lumberjack Paul Bunyan and his bovine sidekick, Babe the Blue Ox, stand on the waterfront of Lake Bemidji. Paul is American folklore's lumberjack, a master logger so tall he could chop hundreds of trees down in one fell swoop. Babe's footprints apparently created Minnesota's 10,000 lakes. Why are they here? Since train travel arrived in Bemidji in the late 1800s and the logging industry expanded, the Pine Forest area had grown into a popular lake district for tourists and summer holiday types coming from nearby Minneapolis, Fargo, and Grand Forks. But the Great Depression caused a downtick in visitor numbers. To bring people back, local business people orchestrated a winter carnival. In January of 1937, they unveiled a five and a half meter tall cement statue of Paul, wearing a red and black plaid shirt and blue pants that were always a bit too short. Two years later, the three meter tall, seven meter long babe appeared with wide horns and sturdy feet. They were the ultimate photo op and became fixtures in town and let's be honest, in my life. I was a wee three years old when I was first photographed with Paul, barely reaching above his shoe. Back then there was still a small amusement park adjacent to the statues and local kids got half price tickets every Friday night. In high school we made fun of tourists, but sometimes we'd head to the lake to take our own Polaroids and analog photos. Or visit our friends who worked summer jobs in the adjacent tourist center, where a small museum still features Paul's huge fingernail clippings, his flag-sized underwear, his saw, and other mythological lumberjack swag. As America evolved, so did its roads, and the meaning and relevance of the highway kitsch. Not long before I left for university, a new highway was built around Bemidji. Instead of random travelers happening upon Paul and Babe as they passed through, the place became more one of pilgrimage, Likewise, many attractions on the old Route 66, or in the American Southwest, have become their very own nostalgic detours, that is, if they didn't entirely disappear. 
Paul and Babe are now octogenarians, but they're still going strong. In the 1990s and again in the 2000s, they made cameos in the movie and TV series Fargo. Home of Bunyan, Babe the Blue Ox. Babe the Blue Ox. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, we got that big statue up there. <laughs> the amusement park is long gone, but in its place is a playground and a stand of lush pine trees that make for a better photo backdrop. In the past few winters, an ornate light show has taken place around the two statues. And in July, when I took a selfie with Paul decades after my first Polaroid, families and tourists still stop for their pictures too, eager to road trip after months of lockdown. These days too, the statues are no longer completely alone. There's also a sculpture of a dancing Ojibwe man nearby, and in the adjacent park, a bronze rendering of Chief Bemidji, an Ojibwe leader the lake and city were named after. This culture was of course here long before the loggers came. Stories are rightfully amended and expanded, but as Americans travel again, kitschy nostalgia definitely still has a place. And there's no place like home. Monocle's Kimberly Bradley there for the latest episode of Tall Stories. And that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam Impey and presented by me, Marcus Hippie. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. And thanks for listening.